30 through 42. John chapter 10, 30 to 42. I and the Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, and because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, ye are gods? If he called them gods unto whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, say ye of him whom the Father hath sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest? Because I said, I am the Son of God. If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, though ye believe not me, believe the works that ye may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Therefore they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hand and went away again beyond the Jordan into the place where John at first baptized, and there he abode. And many resorted unto him and said, John did no miracle, but all things that John spoke of this man were true, and many believed on him there. Shall we pray? Loving Father, that you may bless the reading of the word of God, that you may minister it to our hearts, that you may teach us according to your Holy Spirit to impress it upon our hearts that Jesus truly is the Son of God. And we give thanks and praise to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here we have um, a very good passage to look at uh, in, with some particular detail, if we may. And I've written a few things down here on the board that we would consider for this afternoon. First of all, uh, we'll be looking at these three different areas. First of all, Jesus makes a claim that he and the Father are of, of one purpose and power. Of one purpose and power. Now, that, of course, that uh, statement becomes quite significant for Jesus' claim to be the Son of God. Also, secondly, Jesus refutes that he committed blasphemy. This was one of the accusations that, of course, they brought against Christ, that he had blasphemed against uh, the Scriptures. And uh, blasphemy, of course, was uh, uh, a very serious uh, breaking of the Jewish law, and it usually meant execution. And then thirdly, Jesus returned to where it all began. And so we find that, uh, and at the end of the discourse here, we find that what does Jesus do? He goes back to Perea, which was this region where John the Baptist began preaching and where Christ himself began his public ministry. And by this time, of course, we know that Jesus is drawing near to a very difficult time in his life. Um, and uh, we know that uh, his time of ministry uh, was, sh was shortened considerably uh, and that uh, the cross was not that far away in the future for the Lord. Uh, but he continually 
sought to be the witness and testimony for God the Father that uh, he was sent to accomplish, that he might be revealed as the Son of God, the Savior of sinners, the one who came to die for the sins of the world. So we want to look at these uh, several areas this afternoon. Um, the title, of course, uh, you might say, is the very first verse, I and the Father are one, uh, but that is to say this, that Jesus is the Son of God. And that's why I shortened the, the sermon uh, title there. Um, by way of introduction, let us just say the Godhead is in many ways a complex discussion. Uh, to show that the persons of the Godhead are co-equal and eternal and that each person of the Godhead is distinct in, in person and office is part of the great debate, uh, of course. We know there are many today who don't believe in the triunity of the Godhead or what is commonly called the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity. But uh, it might be better referred to as the triunity of the Godhead for, of course, uh, we're not talking about three gods. We're talking about one true and living God. And yet there are three distinct essences or personages and offices, if you will, of the Godhead, which we see being revealed in the scripture. Even from the very beginning in the book of Genesis, um, in the beginning God created and the Spirit of God moved or brooded upon the face of the waters. And then in Genesis 3.15, of course, we find the great proto-evangelum, uh, which tells us that there would be a great conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Uh, even though a child would be born of promised seed through Abraham, uh, we understand that the lineage of Christ would come with a great deal of difficulty and that Christ himself would be revealed in the fullness of time, born of a virgin that uh, was conceived of the Holy Ghost. And we would understand that even an angelic messenger would bring such a message to Mary to quiet her hearts in the midst of a great and difficult time in her life when she would bear a child. And to do so, of course, outside of wedlock would mean that the father had every right to divorce her. So his spousal was almost like being married, except that they weren't legally so but they were committed to it contractually, you might say. But yet uh, the angel told Mary that she would conceive and the child that would be, she would conceive would be of the Holy Spirit of God and not of Joseph. So this, this whole thing about um, the Godhead in many ways uh, makes a, a great and complex discussion. And of course we're coming upon the, what is traditionally called the Easter season. Uh, when we celebrate the resurrection of Christ and many different churches follow this tradition and we especially as believers understand it to be that Jesus not only died 
but that he rose again on the third day and uh, that he became victorious over death and over sin, victorious over sin and death, and of course uh, later did ascend to the right hand of the Father uh, to go back to be with the Father again after he had completed uh, the work of redemption. Um, And so um, we won't go into further about the Godhead except to say this, that that it really infuriated the religious rulers that Jesus would make such a claim. Um, They had been steeped in long tradition, but yet they had forgotten much of the Holy Scriptures themselves. And being so much the more um, incorporating the law into their life, the Spirit of God was absent among many of them. Uh, And so we find that uh, they did not take kindly to the things that Christ was saying. Uh, But we'll get into that a little bit more. The question today is, did Jesus commit blasphemy? Also, what does Jesus mean by the statement, I and the Father are one? So we'll look at both things uh, today. Um, Three areas, as I have said, we'll be looking at. uh, What did Jesus mean by saying, I and the Father are one? Did Jesus commit blasphemy? And then Jesus argues against their claim by saying that in the scriptures you are called gods and the law cannot be broken. So we'll examine that little bit of text there as well. First of all, Jesus makes the claim that he and the Father are one in purpose and power. So what did Jesus mean by making the statement that I and the Father are one? Uh, The question needs to be asked, is Jesus the Father? So let us look at um, the passage here. First of all, verse 30, I and the Father are one. And of course this becomes a, a very important question to answer because it does go to the... Uh, definition of the Godhead and the unity of the Godhead and the offices of the Godhead but we won't be able to handle all of that but we'll try to make at least this uh, part of the question clear did Jesus mean that he was the Father by saying that I and the Father are one Uh, first of all John Walden makes a comment that I'd like to read to you He says, um, he makes this comment that Jesus was not claiming to be the Father by making this claim to be one with the Father. Instead, Jesus was simply saying that he and the Father were of one unity and purpose. All we would say are of one mind in this matter. The the oneness of purpose was toward his sheep. Remember, we just get on through that passage where he says, talks about the sheep and the security of the sheep. And that the uh, the sheep were in Jesus' hand and the sheep were in the Father's hand. And because of that, they were doubly secure. In fact, they were so secure that it went to the whole uh, idea of the eternal security of the sheep. So uh, he's not here, in other words, he's not addressing the concept of Trinity so much as he is uh, one in purpose and power, one in mind and purpose, if you will. 
So the oneness of purpose was toward the sheep, that they were onefold, that they were safe and secure in his hand, as well as the Father's hand, and that they were acting in complete accord with the Father's will concerning this matter. So, having said that, uh, this view does not take away from the identity as being the Son of God. The statement does not take away from that. Uh, it's, in other words, it's like saying he couldn't even make the statement if he wasn't really the Son of God. If one was just a human being, then you could not make such a divine statement at all. Uh, so it doesn't take away from the fact that he is the Son of God or that he was sent from the Father. And so uh, we understand the incarnation of Jesus was attested to by angels and made known to Joseph and Mary that the child was by conception of the Holy Spirit of God and not conceived of human seed. So the, the purpose of making this statement um, was moreover to say to the Pharisees that just as he himself was sent into the world, sanctified and sent forth from God the Father, he was of one mind and one purpose to do the Father's will in this matter of eternal security to the sheep. But it goes to other issues as well. Uh, just as much as Jesus would have, have um, uh, unity with the Father in this sense of power or, or purpose, we know that every other attribute of the, the deity of Christ would be equally true. It wouldn't take away from any other attribute of the deity of Christ. Uh, uh, so the incarnation of Jesus was attested to. Uh, the Believer's Bible Commentary makes this explanation, and I'll give you another one here or more. Uh, now the Lord Jesus added a further claim to equality with God. He says, I and the Father are one. The thought probably is that Christ and the Father are one in power. He is not saying that they are the same person. Jesus had just been speaking about the power that protects Christ's sheep, therefore he added the explanation that his power is the same as the power of God the Father. Of course, the same is true of all the other attributes of deity. Calvin adds this comment, he intended to meet the jeers of the wicked, meaning the religious rulers, for they might allege that the power of God did not at all belong to him, so that he could promise to his disciples that it would assuredly protect them. He therefore testifies that his affairs are so closely united to those of the Father that the Father's assistance will never be withheld from him and his sheep. Uh, we know that other... Theologians of past centuries have made a mistake on this issue, and they still do today, of course. Um, there were two different um, groups at uh, an early time, such as at the time of Augustine, who thought differently on this, on this matter. And um, one of them was the Sibelians, um, who had a different view on this, and another was the Arians. 
And today we find that, of course, the Jehovah Witnesses have a different view on this, do they not? They, they do not believe the same as we do con- concerning the triunity of the Godhead. Um, and they believe that Jehovah God alone stands in that office. Uh, so the Jehovah Witnesses call Jesus a son of God rather than the son of God. And there are others um, who have a different view. I believe, um, I believe the United Pentecostal Church also has a different view. Similar, maybe, to uh, the Jehovah Witnesses. Uh, but uh, we find that that is not what is intended. Uh, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, in their commentary, makes this statement. He says, by statement, it will be seen that though oneness of essence is not the precise thing here affirmed, that truth is the basis of what is affirmed. In other words, Jesus couldn't make this claim at all if he wasn't truly the Son of God. But he's not saying that he is the same as the Father. Um, he, is, he is saying that he, he is the same in purpose and in power with the Father. And Augustine was right in his saying, the we are, in the statement, uh, being in the plural condemns those who deny the distinction of the person of the Godhead. See, there are some, who, like the Jehovah Witnesses, they deny the distinction of the person of the Godhead. Uh, the we, we are, is in the plural. And so he's talking in the plural as if to say, I and the Father uh, agree on this. And so he's in agreement with the Father. He's putting himself on the same level as the Father. He's not saying he is the Father. Uh, it is the plural viewpoint. Uh, but the one that he refers to, I and the Father are one, the word one is in the neuter uh, gender. It's not in the masculine gender. So it is not one in the sense of being with the Father. It is neuter. It's, a, it's another term meaning in power, in might, in purpose, in will, in mind, um, but not gender. And so the distinction is being made even in the Greek construction uh, of the language here. And so groups such as the Arians who denied the unity of their essence. In other words, some groups deny the unity of essence. We do not deny the unity of essence. We deny the unity of person. They're not the same person. Um, We do not not deny the unity of essence. To deny the unity of essence would say that Jesus really isn't God. No, he is God. He is the son of God. Uh, but he is not the Father. And so uh, Jesus was not claiming to be the Father in this statement. He was saying that he was of the same purpose with the Father concerning the sheep. Jesus was not denying his sonship. Rather, this affirmation of purpose and eternal security of the sheep was based upon his sonship with the Father. He could not make such a claim if he was not truly the Son of God. And therefore we remember that he came into the world, conceived 
of the Holy Spirit. Conceived of the third person of the triunity of the Godhead. So he did come forth from the Father. He was sanctified by the Father. He, he was sent forth by the Father. It's called the incarnation of Christ for that purpose. Not reincarnation, incarnation. He was incarnated from the Godhead. That he might come into the world to fulfill the purpose and plan of redemption. And so we have the scripture, and I think I put it in the bulletin as well, uh, on the inside concerning Philippians uh, chapter 2, 5 through 11, where we read, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, not, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. In other words, he did not hold on to or grasp that equality, but willingly allowed himself to be veiled in human flesh. If he, if he had held on to it, he would have kept his glory. But by coming to earth, by taking on human flesh, even though he was conceived of the Holy Spirit of God, he veiled that human flesh, that, that glory rather, with human flesh. He veiled himself in human flesh. Um, and so as, it, as we read on, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, wherefore God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name and the things um, above every name that at the name of Jesus Every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. In Colossians chapter 2 verses 8 through 10 Be aware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit and that, of course that statement says a lot about what is perpetrated against Christ. It is philosophy and vain deceit. And so he says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. So here, in essence, it it tells us that Jesus Christ is truly from the Godhead, and he did have the same purpose and power of which God the Father had, and he was sent for that very purpose. Um, These things are important to our understanding of who Christ is. Of course, uh, perhaps one of the most famous um, testimonials, um, though it was slightly belated, was concerning Thomas in the New Testament. For uh, Thomas attested to the Godhead of Jesus after the resurrection, meeting him and verifying that Jesus was indeed who he said he was. And after eight days again, his disciples were within and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors having been shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he unto Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands. Reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side. And be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered, and said unto him, My Lord, and my God. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, 
thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. And so Thomas did see and he did believe, being in the very presence of God. But then so were these religious rulers in the very presence of God. So were they also given the same miracles and signs to indicate his messiahship. So were they also in the very hearing of God, and so the very revelation of God was given to them by sight and by heart and by mind, and they would not accept the revelation of God concerning Christ, but rather they denied it, and so they rejected, and so they were unbelieving, though they had seen him. And I know we get down on Thomas's case here a bit, but let us remember that I think we can see something of each of the twelve disciples in our own hearts and minds when we stop and consider. And perhaps uh, we saw their flaws through the scriptures for that very reason. Perhaps we do see them for that reason. But the important thing is Thomas did testify and it became a very important confession of who Jesus is, the Son of God. Secondly, Jesus refutes that he committed blasphemy. And so um, in verses 31 to 39, you find it goes into uh, several different verses here to make that statement clear. In verse 31, Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. And of course this became a kind of a habit of the Jews. The minute they uh, found Jesus saying something or doing something they didn't agree with against the law, they were ready to throw a rock at him um, and to kill him if possibly they could. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I shown you from my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? And so he he begins to, to converse with them upon the basis of this. And it seems like he's saying, in, in a sense, um, I've given you signs of Messiahship. They are signs which come forth from the Father because I came forth from the Father. Um, now, which one of these are you going to stone me for? You see, they should have been looking for the Messiah all along, right? But yet they have overlooked the signs of Messiahship. In verse 33, the Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, and because that thou being a man makest thyself God. Well, it seems like the key, couple of key phrases here is they not only um, allege that he is blasphemed, but they also said that he's nothing but a mere man. So it shows really where they are in their thinking. And it's really, really quite telling upon the hearts of the religious rulers. Now, we have to remember here that this is actually God standing in front of them. This is the Son of God. This is, this is the promise, promise seed which was to come through Abraham even from Genesis 3.15. It was the very early promise of the Proto-Evangelum, the first mention of the evangelistic seed or gospel that would come. And they deny him. They deny that he is the Son of God. They make him a man only. 
Um, and so they do not believe, and they have not received the revelation of God. In verse 33, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, ye are gods? Now, here's where it gets a little bit confusing, perhaps. Um, the hostile crowd reacted and attempted to stone him. We see that already here. Uh, because they understood the implications of his claim. Jesus' courage was displayed in his calm question, which of his miracles, many great miracles, from the Father was their reason for want to stone him? And so he's, he's beginning to lay some foundation for uh, the question here of blasphemy. And, of course, this first one goes to Messiahship, goes to the signs of Messiahship. In other words, if he was truly the Messiah of God, why would they want the blast? Why would they want to stone him? If he was truly the Messiah of God, he could not blaspheme because he is the Messiah. He is, he is the true Christ of God. He is the true anointed one that should come. So he begins to lay the groundwork here uh, in this case. Although they denied that they wanted to stone him for his miracles, this was a falsehood, for they brought accusations against Jesus for healing on the Sabbath, and therefore tried to take him on more than one occasion, but he escaped out of their grasp. Now, I remember earlier concerning the blind man, and also concerning the man who was healed uh, at uh, the pool of Bethesda, uh, we find that these various occasions, we find that they began to also want to pursue him, to kill him, because he was claiming to be something that they did not think he was. They did not think he was the Messiah. They did not think he had the right to do what he did of these great works on the Sabbath day. And, and so their, uh, their alleging these things was, of course, false. Concerning the man healed, being born from, from birth, and concerning others. Uh, Jesus then turns to the law, quoting... Psalm 82, 1 through 8. So if you, if you want to turn there, you can, but this is the gist of what it says in the first four verses. God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. How long will ye judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. Uh, one of the things that the Jewish people were to do, that is the judges who were given the responsibility, was that they were to care for the poor, defend the poor and the fatherless, and do justice to the afflicted and the needy, and to deliver the poor or the needy. Uh, this was the basic law of the Jewish people. It was their social justice and, you might say, their social network to care for one another. And now who were the judges? They are here called gods. It is the same word for Elohim, the one that Pastor Bo mentioned this morning. It can be translated many different ways. Sometimes it is referring to God, who is God. Sometimes it is referring to even demons. Sometimes it is referring to judges of human nature. Now these, um, these uh, Israelite judges... Uh, were called, Jesus says, they're called gods here. That's what he says. And uh, we probably shouldn't argue against what Christ is saying, should we? No. Uh, so 
He's, he's making that claim, in, in, even in the text here. Uh, as we look at verse uh, 34, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, ye are, ye are gods? Ye are gods? At other places in the Bible, gods are sometimes called idols or demons, and so they can refer to the word Elohim can be translated a number of different ways. But here, it is translated as judge. In the, in the book of the Psalms. And normally the word law might refer to the five books of the, of the Bible, the Pentateuch. Um, but here it also includes the prophets or even the Psalms. Uh, as the larger body of the law would include all of the Old Testament. And so Jesus refers again to that. And uh, he adds the comment, and the law cannot be broken. And the scriptures cannot be broken. And, and which gives more confirmation to what he is saying. It's like saying, if you believe that the, that the law of God is true, and you were called gods, if you believe that the law of God is true, and the scriptures cannot be broken, if you believe that, then you believe in the inerrancy of the word of God. Now see, this is also a very important issue, isn't it, for Christians? That we believe in the inerrancy of the Word of God. That simply means that the Word of God is without error, in part or in whole. Uh, even if it's reporting something that uh, may be controversial. Uh, God gives a lot of information in His Word. And we find that He used this, um, this method of argument because... It pertained to the law, which the religious rulers were so quick to point to. It was their platform for argument. And so he points to the law and he says, I do the works of the Messiah. You are called gods because you were made judges over others. Because, and, and in, in fact, that particular passage in Psalm 82 was a condemnation of their unwillingness to fully judge as they should. And they were called gods in the sense of small g-o-d, which simply means they were made judges of God, or by God. They were made judges by God. Uh, they, it does not mean that they were, in any sense, deity. They were just simply given that authority to judge in the place of God. And so the Bible knowledge commentator makes this statement. Jesus' response to their objection requires a bit of insight into the methods of argument common to rabbinic discussions. He first directed them to the Old Testament in your law, and then he refers to the idea of the law being also including in the Psalms. The argument follows that if they were called gods who were appointed judges of mere men and the law could not be broken or challenged in this saying, he had every right to say that he is the Son of God for he himself was sanctified and sent from God the Father and came to do the Father's will. The authority of the word of God came from God. In the Old Testament, uh, it was considered to be the oracles of God. The, the Old Testament, the, the, if you will, Israel or the Hebrew people were given the divine oracles of God. That's what sets them apart as being unique unto 
above all other revelations of men, the oracles of God came by the revelation of God, not of men. And so um, he is making a very strong argument to them, one that they cannot argue against. Um, and so um, as we move on here, I'll just make another statement of clarification. Jesus now completed his argument since the inerrant Bible called their judges gods, G-O-D-S, small gods. The Jews could not logically accuse him of blasphemy for calling himself God's son since he was under divine orders, set apart and on God's mission and sent into the world. And so Jesus refutes that he committed blasphemy. He could not possibly do it because he, is, he himself is the Son of God. He himself was sent of God. He himself came as the incarnate of God into the world. God cannot blaspheme. Because blasphemy, by definition, would be to either to attribute something that God was doing or had done to Satan, or it would be in some sense to curse God. And one particular Old Testament account that was given was of an Israelitish woman who had a young boy, and he committed cursing against God. And he, it was the, they put him in ward or they put him in confinement until they sought the mind of the Lord in the matter, and God said that they must stone him. They must bring him out in the congregation, and those who heard him curse God were or blaspheme against God were to lay their hands upon his head, and then they were to stone him to death, because it was an executable offense, and that it, that uh, God's people were not to curse or blaspheme the name of God. Of course, today we hear a lot of that going on, don't we? Um, it might be a lot less few people if we had that same law, huh? But thankfully, even for us, it is a good thing that we are in the age of grace and God is gracious and merciful. Again, Jesus looked to uh, the confirmation of those works and signs and miracles that testified to who he was. Let's continue reading here in, in verse 36. Say ye of him whom the Father hath sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemous, because I said I am the Son of God. Uh, notice the translation shows capital Son of God. Jesus is Son of God. If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, though ye believe not me, believe the works that ye may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. And so again, Jesus brings them right back to the same thing. He, he argues the, uh, that he did not commit blasphemy. He argues that. And he makes that statement based upon the Old Testament law and based upon his own sanctification and his own coming into the world as being sent forth from God. 
And then he brings them right back to the same argument again, saying, why don't you just look at the works that I'm doing? Are they works of, the, of, this, of one who is a devil? Or are they works of one who was sent forth from God? Now, they should have been very willing to look at the works and say they are of God. In fact, the whole Old Testament was all about uh, certain kinds of signs and wonders to establish whether God was truly God or not. And they should have been able to do that. In other words, their discernment was very faulty in this matter. And we have a great many people today that their discernment is very faulty upon these issues. Um, they're not looking honestly at the subject. And even those who are unsaved uh, without, without discernment, though they have heard, though they have uh, understood what the scripture has to say, and the, the, the word of God is capable of being understood yes. from a human point of view. Though it takes the Spirit of God to quicken the heart and mind, the Word of God is capable of being understood, else it would not have been given at all. But we do have it. We do have the revelation that, which has been given. And yet many reject it, and many, many uh, choose to ignore it, or to just disbelieve totally, but the, what, discount what the Word of God has to say. And so that brings us down to verse uh, 39, 38, excuse me. Um, oh, I'll take that back, 39. We just read, read verse 38. Therefore they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hand. And so this takes us to really the last point here. Jesus returned to where it all began. Now this may sound a little bit strange to to us to um, consider that Jesus simply went back to the beginning of his ministry. But remember that is where he was baptized uh, himself and the, the Father opened the clouds as it were and said, uh, this is my beloved son, hear ye him. Uh, John recognized that this was the Messiah, this was the Christ. They, John says, Behold the Lamb of God, taketh away the sin of the world. John himself was a prophet, and he, called, and he knew that that's all he was. In fact, he said, I must decrease and he must increase. John was not trying to presume to take the place of the Christ at all. And uh, so Jesus... Um, though he had made his rounds, so to speak, of going from various villages and, and places uh, throughout Judea, uh, Jerusalem, and even in the city of Jerusalem, and at the temple, and at the various feasts of, of tabernacles, and the Feast of Dedication. Um, and there were many people who followed Christ. But as he went back uh, unto this place where he first began his ministry in Perea, beyond Jordan, that is over the Jordan, uh, we find now he um, kind of has returned to some sense of isolation from the crowds. Though there were people that came, there were people who followed him. And so Perea was located where John the Baptist first began preaching and said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so Jesus resorts to these outer regions of public ministry, 
where he could seek some solitude and reflection on what lay ahead of him um, because he knew the cross was drawing near. And so Jesus' uh, withdrawal here um, as he goes away beyond the Jordan and uh, as he uh, encounters people there, let's just say in verse 40, and went away beyond Jordan, the Jordan into the place where John at first baptized and there he abode and many resorted unto him and said, John did no miracle, but all things that John spake of this man were true. Now you see, the, the, the crowd, the people, did believe that he was the Christ. And they witnessed what John had to say. And they saw what Jesus did. In other words, they were taking particular note of the signs of Messiahship. They were, they were taking notes of it. They were seeing Jesus. They were doing what the, what the religious rulers did not do. They were taking Jesus at what he was doing and saying, yes, this is truly the Messiah of God. John confirmed that he was the Messiah, that he had come. John was preaching repentance for the kingdom of God was at hand. John was saying this was he that should come. John was making these claims of Christ and Christ was fulfilling them one by one upon the basis of who he was as the sanctified Son of God and Savior. And now he returns to that same place, and the people were also coming to him. They were coming to him as they did before. Many resorted unto him, uh, and many believed on him there, verse 42. Many believed on him there. So it is true that man, given the word of God can understand and believe that Jesus truly is the Son of God. These people were uh, giving confession to that. They, they were giving confession to it, though the religious rulers of the day were not. And we see that is the difference between believing and not believing. That is the difference between rejecting and uh, really committing oneself unto true faith in Christ. Even though Thomas came somewhat reluctantly, you might say, or belatedly, yet he did believe, and he gave a powerful confession. And I'm sure that Jesus would have accepted all who would come, seeing him, and understanding that his signs were truly that of the true Messiah of God. We can do no less than to present who Christ is. We must do the same. We must present Christ for who He is. We don't need to, we don't need to bring signs and wonders for Christ. Christ speaks for Himself. The Word of God speaks for itself. The testimony of Jesus is that He is the Son of God. And it is confirmed upon many accounts. And Jesus confirms it himself, saying, I am the Father of one, I'm one. And he could not do this, save he was truly the Son of God. Shall we pray? Loving Father, we do thank you for your word to us. Pray your grace and mercies, Lord, that as we continue to serve you and to give witness and testimony to you, that we may be bold enough to simply bring the word of God in the true purity and revelation of it, and pray, Father, that you will open the eyes 
of those who know not that they may see that Jesus truly is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the one who was sent to bear the sins of the world, that they also may come and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.